fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 to 29. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, from, the, from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this? And dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table? or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Am I wired for sound? Sounds like I am from this distance. Let me pray before I speak. Our Father, in the words of the psalmist, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, 
my rock and my redeemer. Amen. That's what I need. (laughs) (laughs) Of the uh, five senses that we have, they say the sense of smell is the strongest. What do they mean by that? Well, they simply mean that the sense of smell is somehow inexplicably connected with the uh, memory and things you have smelt uh, years ago, your memory tells you that they're familiar where the other senses, maybe the sense of sight, although you tend to forget things that you've seen. But those who study the sense of smell tell us that the memory and the sense of smell go together. We had that passage from Jeremiah read out to us and what it doesn't talk about is the sense of smell that's in the background. I don't mean to shock you but you never, ever, ever forget the sense or the smell of burning flesh. Jeremiah the prophet never ever forgot the smell of burning flesh. Somewhere near to where he lived in Jerusalem, they were burning children to a god they call Molech. He was powerless to stop the practice. God had told him that he saw what they did and in what I think is probably a unique response from God, he called the practice loathsome and such behaviour had never entered God's mind. Perhaps just as bad for Jeremiah was the cries of adults celebrating the sacrifice of children. What degeneracy when you feel obliged, committed, forced to celebrate the sacrifice of a child, smell the burning flesh and raise a ruckus at the same time. Which is worse, the smell or the fantasy that child's sacrifice can change the future and make it favourable? Why did they resort to such a fancy? Because the city of Jerusalem was besieged and soon to fall to the most powerful army in the then known world, the Babylonians. Jeremiah had no hope. The king was degenerate, influenced by false prophets, seduced by the prospect of alliances with other powerful nations and totally neglectful or perhaps more strongly, contemptuous of God. And the priests, well, they were sycophants. Big word, just means they sucked up 
who preserved their own position. It could not have been worse. Jeremiah has every reason to think that he is the last living prophet. He's not, if you read the Bible, but he had every reason to think he was the last living prophet and this was the end of the road. Into this mess, Jeremiah writes down a direct message that he received from God. It's not a vision or drug-induced, but some sort of personal encounter or visitation that gives content, God's content for the future. Nathan will be glad. Nathan, I'm about to parachute you. (laughs) He asked me before the service about this. The only way I know how to get into the passage quickly and not give you some sort of lengthy and unnecessary introduction. I'm going to parachute you into these words and the drop zone is clearly outlined with those words at the beginning of the reading uh, where God says, I'm about to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Those of you who have uh, been here um, over the last three or four months since uh, Lee's been away uh, have heard this working definition of covenant before, but we've got lots of visitors this morning, so I really need to uh, spell it out again. My working definition of a covenant uh, (coughs) is that it's uh, God's long-term commitment to mercy, which in the face of long-term contempt for him, turns into a make or break oath by God that sometime, somehow, he will restore the world to what he intended and in so doing he will include some people who will love him unreservedly like humans were intended to do from the beginning. What Jeremiah hears is that the days are coming. He writes it down for us. And those words talk about some sort of indeterminate future. In the days to come there will be a new, and you're right to think immediately, uh, is there an old, there will be a new covenant which is not like the covenant made with the historic people of Israel ahead of them ending up at Mount Sinai. If you're not sure what that's about, uh, think of those scenes that are uh, represented in movies and uh, sometimes in cartoons of a very um, ancient-looking Moses clutching lumps of stone and saying something either funny, serious or dramatic to a group of people at the foot of the mountain. That's the scene. But God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. He doesn't use the word old at that point, but as he does talk about a contrast between what was past, what was past and what was future. Now we use that word new in a couple of ways. If I trade in my car on a brand new car, then the vehicle is new to me. However, for the dealer that conned me into buying it, sometimes, (laughs) It is not a new car. The reality is that it's a new model. He needs to make a commission. He needs to move the um, stock off the floor. And the models that preceded it worked perfectly well. It's labelled a new model, but it's got four wheels, 
It's got a motor, it's got a steering wheel, it's got seats and it's got blinkers. The new, the new model has wheels, seats, motor, blinkers and whatever else I listed a moment ago. But it's new. It's got new features. I think the word new here is new features. Not new like totally new. See, it depends on the perspective. A new car is new to me, or for the dealer, it's just a new model. This drop zone paragraph talks exclusively of what God will do, and the new is new from his perspective, which strongly suggests to me that it is a new model which supersedes what was perfectly what was a perfectly good working covenant. The problem lay with the people to whom he showed mercy, for they despised, or more strongly, were contemptuous of the relationship. <coughs> Jeremiah simply says they broke the covenant and that, that captures a whole lot of dodgy behaviour. So God needs to introduce a new model. And he goes on to talk about the new features. He says there that, or God says, that in that old model he was a husband. So we get some idea of what breaking the covenant means when God describes himself as a husband to them. From God's perspective, in the past, he'd taken an, an unlovable rabble and pledged himself, like in a marriage, as we understand it, to be a strong leader and protector. But historically, we can read from the, at least the time of the Exodus, the people didn't want that and they went off and if I can extend the use of the uh, marriage uh, metaphor, they went off after other lovers. They were, in a few words, spiritual adulterers. And it culminates in this scene that uh, uh, Jeremiah has to live with. When you substitute live children for lambs, and volunteer to have sex with random people to stimulate the grain harvest somehow, in one, two, three, four, five words, you have lost the plot. So these words are about something old and something new, which I discovered was some sort of line out of weddings or marriage preparation, but... I didn't explore it any further, it just sounded good. The old is the covenant that God unilaterally organised, the old provided an intimate relationship, redemption from Egypt and the ongoing presence of God through the tabernacle and the temple. The something new is what Jeremiah hears from verse 33 onwards. God is going to enhance the features of the covenants. There is a sense in which there is nothing different but a sense of permanence, finality and enduring modification. For instance, God says that the law will be written on hearts. 
God says that he alone, there's no negotiation here, he alone will write the law on their hearts. Does it mean that he will make them robots, programmed to do what he wants? No. The law is not a straitjacket. The law is how you live, in effect, the lifestyle that sustains a relationship with God. When God says that he'll write the law on the hearts, there's just a hint that the role of the nation will change, the whole nation. Teaching was the law, sorry, teaching the law was the work of priests. If everyone has the law built into them, then it's reasonable to think that priests are superfluous. All the people, in some sense, if they have the law written on their hearts, will be priests. And also, I want you to notice very carefully that it's written on hearts, not on stone. Today we have um, evacuated the word uh, love and it or sorry, uh, heart, and it's fundamentally got to do with Valentine's Day and romantic love. But for somebody who was a contemporary of Jeremiah, the heart was sort of equivalent to the mind, only even deeper. We get closer to the idea of the heart when you and I observe destructive, addictive behaviour. A person knows in their mind that a drug or alcohol is destroying them, but they're addicted. So they persist in taking the drug and drinking whatever it is that they drink. So we have to say, well, if they know it's wrong and it's destroying them, many of us would say something deeper is driving them. The Bible would say that's the heart. So God says he's going to write the law on the heart. He sees the creatures that he's made and knows full well that though they may know in their mind what the right thing is to do, like, you shall have no other gods before me. Yeah, but what about that child sacrifice? What about the dodgy sex in order to get crops to grow? You know what God says, but it doesn't mean you'll do it. So whatever God does to everyone in the future, in the relationship that he calls, his idea, the covenant, it'll transform, that's what these words say, it'll transform the deepest motivations, loves and passions that drive people to their lifestyles. He knows full well that they won't change because they can't. So God will change them. That's what uh, Jeremiah hears. And then God says, as a part of whatever it is that's coming in the future that he calls a new covenant, 
He says, I'll be their God and they will be my people. Now, where have you heard that before? Well, the saying's at least as old as the time of Abraham. And I haven't got time to take you back there this morning. This promise that he will be God and they will be his people is one of the things that drives me to see the covenant as the skeleton of the Bible's big story. Where's Andy? Um, These words, I'll be their God and they will be my people, is the covenant chorus, (laughs) if that helps you. If God says to Abraham that this is what he is working towards, and in the catastrophic degeneracy of Jeremiah's time, he says the same thing, is it just aspirational on God's part? You know, sort of a wish. No. You and I need to look again most carefully at how all this hangs together. So all I want to do is say that this unilateral, I express the word again, unilateral promise, I'll be their God and they will be my people, there is some sort of hint of the dismantling of all the structures that characterise up to that point of time the relationship with God. The temple, the priesthood, the sacrificial system, maybe even the succession of earthly kings will be made redundant if there is just God relating to people directly. Let me put it simply and boldly, if I haven't already. There will be no more religion. Religion means you do something for the God, (coughs) some ritual, some offering, some practice that establishes contract or obligation that makes the God you worship indebted to you. If from the other side, God who made the world says that he will be in direct relationship without religious structures, something absolutely remarkable is coming. But Jeremiah is not finished in what he hears from God. He says... God says, and no longer shall each teach his neighbour to know the Lord. So, if there's no need for anyone to teach his neighbour, Something remarkable is coming and that little word and that begins verse 34, simple grammar tells me that that sentence is a consequence of God directly relating to people. In the future, in the new covenant, everyone from the least to the greatest will know God. Now all of us here this morning, myself included, are at a disadvantage because like the word heart, Uh, Knowing has become um, withered 
uh, withered to the point where it actually only refers to facts and actions. Michael and Nathan and I um, took our recreational skipper's licence a couple of weeks ago. I had to know the handbook and be able, to a modest degree, to handle a small boat. I now have my licence and the knowledge of what's required on the water. I know what's required. But there are no surprises. My recreational skipper's licence, where I know the rules, has not changed me deeply. I know that my wife loves me. Now that's a knowledge at an altogether different level. If these words are to be fulfilled and everyone knows God as the Lord of the covenant from the least to the greatest, then again it suggests to me that there will be no need for kings, priests or prophets. Let me say it again. In the future, if you believe these words in Jeremiah, God is signalling that his unilateral intention as he rolls out the covenant will make kings, priests and prophets redundant because everyone will know him from the least to the greatest. Kings, priests and prophets, they always had a shelf life. They served their purpose in time. The king, as one of his primary roles, was to know God and make sure the people knew God. The priests were to teach the people so that they would know God. And the prophets called people to know God and what he would do to them if they persisted in idolatry. If everyone knows God from the greatest, the king, to the least, the kid in the household, then kings, prophets and priests are surplus to requirements. And we're almost at the end. God says, For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. I'm down to that last sentence in Jeremiah's report of God's radical covenant promise. In the future, sometime, somehow, the covenant model will enable God with integrity, with no compromise to his holy and just character, to forgive past iniquity and not hold people accountable for sin. At this point he doesn't say how he will do it but he does say that he will forgive iniquity, a very uncommon word, uncommon for us today, not uncommon in the Bible. Whenever you see that word iniquity be absolutely 100% sure that in the backstory that leads up to the use of that word is idolatry of some shape or form. Men and women, as a wise old white male said uh, 400 years ago, you can ask me who he was later, famously said, men and women are idol factories. 
to update his metaphor, you and I are hardwired to default to worshipping something like money, sex or power, almost anything else other than God. How will God forgive idolatry? (coughs) These words just don't say. So for alert readers, maybe this is the first time you've actually... um, Uh, you've read the words or heard them read but you've never actually probed them. For alert readers there is something tantalising here, almost unimaginable given the history of mankind to this point. Finally God says to Jeremiah who writes this down for his contemporaries and for us that he will remember sin no more. Again, that word sin is one that has a long history in Western civilization, at least of abuse. And please note that it is sin, singular, not sins, plural. We're infected with Western individualism. It's not about individual sins. Sin, not sins, is the congenital that is born with it, the congenital condition that makes every human person born, their default position is sin and they manifest the symptoms of that congenital disease or maybe it's more correct to call it a syndrome but there's a doctor here, you can argue with me afterwards, that syndrome shows up from birth, just ask me about my granddaughters and it gets worse as we get older and I'm including myself at that point. So let me shake the cage, maybe for the second or third time as we're about to leave Jeremiah and we're going to transition. If God no longer sees or let me say more correctly, if God forgives sin as a terminal condition which shows up in various ways as contempt for him, there is just the hint here that death and punishment for sin and resurrection as a consequence will be ushered into the world. Now I acknowledge that it's only a hint but it's undeniable if God remembers sin no more, sin that brings death, there has to be an alternative. There has to be as well a a resurrection or whatever word you want to choose at this particular point somehow. Nearly done. Now I need to transition or segue, whichever word you like, to the very next time historically when the words new covenant are used. You heard them read but perhaps you never really appreciated them. On the last night of his life Jesus re-engineers the Passover supper (coughs) or meal that he shares with his disciples and simply says in the course of much that he says on that night as Luke records it, This is the new covenant in my blood. 
disciples don't say, hold on, hold, hold, hold on Jesus, just a second, just a second. What are you talking about? The disciples, as average punters, Jewish average punters, knew of the new covenant and what Jeremiah reported on because they'd probably heard it in the synagogue school. They have expectations when Jesus talks about new covenant. They don't ask him what it means. Their expectations are they don't ask for clarification because they don't need it. They start bickering about who will have the best jobs in the coming, uh, coming kingdom, which is what's associated with the new covenant. <coughs> Jeremiah, an absence of those two words, new covenant, until in a lamp-lit room on Passover Eve, with 12 who become 11 disciples, a man says, as he re-engineers the Passover feast, this is the, if I could get the, turn up the bass at this point, uh, Andy, so that it reverberates. This is the new, 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 new covenant. And we just read it because we're sophisticated Westerners and the Old Testament, particularly Jeremiah, is amongst the sticky pages in our Bible. Jesus also says that uh, one of the cups is a symbol that represents the new covenant in my blood. In my blood. Maybe I should have reverberation switched up for the word blood as well because that word takes any hearer back into the Old Testament as well. Shed blood is a metaphor for violent death, not just, you know, I cut myself and so I need a band-aid because I'm bleeding. They didn't have band-aids in those days. This is the new covenant in my blood is a reference by Jesus to violent death and some sort of representative function and a violent death which is unwarranted. I don't have time this morning to pursue this backwards into the story. But I can tell you the disciples, like us, practice selective hearing. New covenant means new roles and status. Shed blood means sacrifice. As a disciple, I don't, want to con I don't want to consider the idea of sacrifice and blood with all its implications. All I want to hear is new covenant and uh, I think about, selfishly, the disciples think what their position is and so that's why I included in the reading in Luke the stuff about them starting to jostle one another about who's going to be top dog in the new covenant kingdom. But back to Jesus and away from the disciples and I'm winding up. So what is Jesus saying? The covenant in which sometime, somehow, God will renew the whole world 
and restore the relationship to himself with some people has come to a focus in him. He is the means of writing the law on the heart. He is the way, or will be the way, God will be their God and they will be his people. Not just the 11 disciples who are left in the room, but successive generations right down to the 1st of December 2019 in Frio. He is the person who makes kings, priests and prophets redundant because everyone from the least to the greatest will know God through him. He's the focus for how God will forgive idolatry in all its manifestations and he somehow will make the congenital condition called sin a manageable disease. (laughs) I can't take any more time on that this, this morning. Where does the rubber meet the road? I've said repeatedly that when you fillet a fish, I just used that example, you fillet the fish, take the, the meat, uh, the flesh off, you expose the skeleton which gives the shape to the fish and supports the, the whole activity of the fish, the body. So too, when you fillet the Bible's big story, I'm almost game to say anywhere, you will expose the unilateral covenant of God which gives both shape and support to the whole story. Not to disappoint certain members of my audience, The last week uh, uh, Lee was here, I started off talking about the covenant uh, with Abraham. And I said, packed into the covenant with Abraham is everything which is coming in the future. And then the next week, next week, next month, I said, well, uh, we're up to the time of the Exodus and the covenant theme gets... Uh, layers added to it as the people gather around the foot of the mountain. A month ago I was here um, again and uh, we looked at that covenant uh, with um, King David that held prospect for the future. The covenant which included one like David who had come from, you know, David's ancestors who would be the king over the whole world. (laughs) This week I've just taken you to another place in the Old Testament where this covenant that began with Noah uh, gets, if you like, more added to it. Um, why did I choose Barbushka dolls? Because in the original, they're all contained in there. And I'm telling you, when you read Abraham, it's all contained in there if you've just got eyes to see. But everybody knows about Babushka dolls <laughs> and knows that there's five, usually maybe more, seven. 
we learn that the covenant ultimately radically, um, perhaps surprisingly, requires the death of someone special to be enacted. It may well be the smallest piece in a babushka set, but it is the most significant. Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. If there is to be a new covenant, then it's going to require my death. It's hard to see death of the Son of God back with Abraham, but if you follow the line and the story of the Bible, this is where it ends, or you might also say this is where it begins. Because no longer are there priests and kings and prophets. No longer are we subject to a congenital disease that will ultimately end in death eternally. But there's a new covenant. Unilaterally, God's idea, using in his son. So that people have a relationship with him, both in this life and in the life to come. Let me pray. Uh, Lord God, it was uh, your idea to unilaterally commit to doing something about this world sometime, somehow. We're fortunate enough to live on the other side of the death and resurrection. So we can see the unfolding story, we can see the plan, and we can hear your unmistakable call to get rid of the old stories that would control our life where we were at the centre and adopt a new story where we become a part of uh, your people both for the duration of our life and into whatever the future exactly holds with you. Give us the courage to uh, step out and trust that you have done it all. Um, deliver us from trying to do some sort of uh, Bingley bargain with you where you, we, we negotiate to get the lowest price where we contribute something. May we embrace heart, mind, soul and strength the idea that in your sovereign majesty you loved us from before the foundation of the world and you've done for us what we could never do. Hear our prayer now. Amen. Uh, please stand and sing with us. We